0: Hey everybody, it's Mike McGinnis, host of the You Don't Know History podcast. I um, just want to let everybody know that we did start Patreon, uh, where you will get episodes of uh, the pod on Tuesdays, um, as well as uh, what I'm a new thing I'm calling the postscript, where I share with everybody uh, what I learned uh, from the guests for the week. So, if you're interested in becoming a patron, uh, you can find. The link to uh, the You Don't Know History Patreon page uh, at my personal Twitter, under my link tree, at uh, BeardedCynic473, as well as uh, going on Patreon and just searching for You Don't Know History. Uh, your donation would keep me um, in uh, research materials, uh, as well as helping me upgrade uh, you know, my hardware to keep the pod going. Um, yeah, so give it a thought. Uh, if you like what we do, uh, please donate, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Mike, and we're here for episode 11 of You Don't Know History. And today I'm joined by Dr. Jasmine Contreras uh, from Gaucher College in Maryland. I think I said that right. Uh, <laughs> um, her research is focused on the development of contemporary Holocaust and World War II memorial culture in the Netherlands within the larger framework of European and international Holocaust initiatives. So today we're going to be talking about the Netherlands from 1940 to 1945. So, Dr. Contreras, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing
1: Thanks for having me?
0: Oh, I'm, I'm so glad. I think this is one of those things that uh, a lot of it gets kind of lost in the shuffle with larger World War Two, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, Uh, academic studies, Um, you know, we, 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 you know, we always hear about France, right, in in the Vichy team, we always hear about, uh, you know, what happened in Poland, Uh, but people don't realize that when the blitzkrieg started, it rolled right through the Netherlands and Belgium first, Mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, Holland, or, you know, the the Netherlands had a pretty sizable Jewish population uh, prior Mm -hmm. to the start of the war, right, um, what I was able to find in 1920, um, they had 115,223, uh, people who claimed to be Jewish. And that's, that's mm-hmm. not, I, I guess there was like a, what they called a mix, uh, a mix, like that was one of those unfortunate titles, but they were mixed Jewish where, yes, yeah. uh, like one parent was Jewish and the other wasn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, and, and just the, you know, just a quick rundown is, you know, the Netherlands were a neutral nation. Uh, Prior Mm -hmm. to the war starting Uh, and then, you know, Hitler comes to power and he wants that living space and he wants to go into France. And naturally, uh, he does what Germany does uh, in world big world conflicts as he blows right through the um, uh, the low countries, which, you know, Mm -hmm. one of them, you know, and and the the Dutch army put up a good fight. Uh, You know, they were very under equipped with weapons and artillery pieces from the First World War. Um, you know, but yeah. in about a five day span, you know, the Nazis started, uh, dropping soldiers, uh, into Aachenberg and in, I hope I'm saying this correctly, Epenburg. Um, and, uh, they also dropped people on the Hague, you know, they, they had paratroopers mm-hmm. going in and within five days, um, you know, the, I guess the, the Royal family got out, uh, and they officially surrendered. Yeah. Um, yes. And at that point, Nazi Germany occupies uh, the Netherlands. Um, Now, why don't you tell us a little bit what that occupation was like.
1: Yeah, so I mean, one thing to note is, if you ever go to the Netherlands today, you'll ask yourself why is Rotterdam so modern, and that's because the city was destroyed during the war. Uh, So a lot of the architecture is, is a lot more modern than you'll see in other cities. Um, Queen Wilhelmina uh, establishes an occupied government, uh, sorry, an underground government in London. Uh, And in doing so, there's mixed reaction from the Dutch people about whether she should have stayed. Um, But in her place, a civilian uh, occupied uh, government takes control of the country. Um, And this is because, and this is really important, and I think a lot of people kind of skim over this fact, Um, the Hitler wanted the Netherlands believed the Dutch to be Aryan, he wanted the Netherlands as this kind of greater German Reich. Uh, And so initially policy. uh, It's not meant to be harsh for those non uh, Jewish Dutch civilians, because he wants them um, to be part of this greater German Reich. And he also initially encourages relationships between Dutch women and German soldiers. That he eventually scratches because um, there's a lack of of men in general in Germany, so he doesn't want to, uh, you know, step on the toes of German women. Uh, but there is a, a coordinated plan uh, to, and, and that's why you have a civilian government uh, to attempt to bring the Netherlands into the fold.
0: Now, so that would you would you say uh, I don't mean to wrap, but uh, would would this be more just like trying to keep things? Essentially keep things running, or was this an actual like collaborationist government that was working hand in hand with the Nazis?
1: I mean, that's a great question. Uh, That's a great question because it it is not a collaborationist government that you see in like Vichy. Yeah. Uh, But the you know if you want to know part of the reason why the the numbers of uh, Jewish Dutch uh, civilians are deported during the war, it's because of the complete collaboration of the the civil service and okay. the Dutch civil service was well known for uh, being incredibly organized and good at their job uh, which meant that they had information and registers on every single jewish person living in the netherlands uh, and they w- and they willingly gave that information up
0: yeah, you know that's oh well, well organized groups seem to do really well with really bad things um, but okay so we 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 see this happen. Uh, you know, like it's it's you know, that civil administration's helping the Nazis, you know, start mm-hmm. clearing out uh the Jewish population. But like who was who was leading this um I I, I guess this collaborationist government? Like who was who were the who was in charge?
1: Yeah, so it's an Austrian, uh an Austrian uh, Reich commissioner uh, by the name of Arthur Seiss Inkort. Um and he is in charge of that civilian government um in the Netherlands, uh, but you also, again, a lot of these things can't happen unless you have the collaboration of the bureaucracy, um, mayors, police, all of them um, being in some way complicit. The ones who are not are quickly replaced. Um, you know, After the, the February stocking uh, of 1941, which was the largest um, protest against the deportation of Jewish men and boys, Um, And that happens in 1941. It's mostly organized by uh, the communists. um, And in response to that, um, people are killed, people are executed, but the mayor of Amsterdam is replaced, the police commissioner is replaced with somebody more friendly, uh, and the city of Amsterdam is charged 15 million uh, gelders, which is uh, the, the form of currency at the time. Uh, so you can see any effort, you know, they're, they're, they're playing nice at the beginning of the occupation, but any form of protest or resistance is immediately, um, you know, squashed. Uh, and they are replacing people with those who are friendly. And the reason they had a kind of inkling of who was going to be uh, friendly to the Nazi regime is because they uh, the Netherlands had a, a small um, uh, Dutch Nazi party uh, in, in about 1930 is is formed sort of popular from 1930 to 1935 at its height um, but the Dutch people really aren't interested in it um, the government clamps down on the NSB um, because uh, they they say you can't wear uniforms in public. Uh, Members of these organizations cannot work for the government. So they kind of drift off. um, And when the occupation starts, they're like, yes, we're here, please use us. And the Nazis are less about this small Dutch Nazi party. (laughs) So it's kind of embarrassing. Um, It's kind of embarrassing for for uh, that party. And, um, you know, they they do they kind of provide muscle i mean at at any point where they're searching for jews uh they need police officers who are going to be friendly to the nazis um but they really the the you know the german uh the german right could care less about uh, the the small dutch nazi party
0: yeah i noticed that the 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 the, uh policy was called the gleich schaltung uh it was called you know essentially it's it's roughly translated into forced conformity um now like what what type of policy are we talking here uh was it was it you know did they have to integrate like economically into uh like german uh you know like what, what were the germans utilizing them to was was it like a natural you know were they taking natural resources was it taking money like how how did it how did it kind of work
1: Yeah, so, I mean, Gleischeltung is something that the Germans did in Germany first, right? So the Nazis did, uh, you know, with the country. Um, You can see, I mean, there's, there's arguments about the degree to which the Germans ravaged the Dutch economy. Um, Obviously, every place that the Germans went into a country, uh, it was a, a quest for resources, and that could be manpower or you know natural resources, um, you know forced labors, uh, You had by 1943. So again, you know we're looking at a slower timeline than you might see in some other places because of the way that the Germans feel about the Dutch being, you know, their Aryan brothers. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That it is in 1943 that uh, a that men, you know, over 18 are actually recruited for forced labor, um, and. Not until that point do you have a very active uh, operation, it's really 1942, uh, to help people go underground. And the problem with this is that by the time they had an organization that was successful in hiding people, it was mainly for those Dutch non-Jewish men, who had been recruited or, you know, forced to go and do labor in the East or in Germany. Um, And so this is another reason why 1943, end of 1943, most Dutch Jews have been deported already. So by the time they had a working organization to, to help people go underground, it was mainly for those Dutch men and not the Jewish population. Um, But, you know, you have this slow introduction, and this is kind of mirroring what happens in Germany, of of, um, policies aimed at Dutch Jews. So, you know, early on, 1940, they require all uh, civil service to sign um, a a paper, uh, kind of a loyalty paper saying, uh, we have no uh, Jewish blood in my wife's family or my family or my husband's family, right? So either depending on who the worker was. Um, And surprisingly, uh, you know, 200,000 people signed that. Very few didn't. So, you know, this question again of complicity uh, and of not kind of pushing back against these these requirements. Um, Then you, of course, you know, have the introduction of identity cards, uh, wearing the the Jewish star, um, you know, where, where Dutch Jews can go, where they can't. Um, so Park, you know, one of the largest parks in Amsterdam, well known, pretty famous, um, you know, it has the forbidden for Jew sign put up, you know, so a lot of places start to kind of mirror what you had in Germany. Um, places are off limits. In Amsterdam, there's certain areas that Jews have to remain, it's not an official ghetto, um, but there are, you know, fences and barbed wire, and it's just kind of you can only stay with kind of within your neighborhoods, um, and so it is a it is a slow kind of buildup. But by um, you know uh, by 1941, uh, is it 41 or 42? I have to check my notes because I always forget. Um, let's see here. I want to make sure I give you the correct date with this. If it's 41. Yeah so 41 February 41 they are already arresting people to be transported to Westerbork which is the largest trans- transit camp in the country 42 the first deportation to Auschwitz from Westerbork so yeah,
0: and Westerbork has a kind of has a, a history there um, you know it was essentially a place that the Dutch government was housing Jews that were escaping Germany uh, mm-hmm. You know they they put them up there, and then it becomes like a, like the transit hub out to the camps in the east.
1: Yes. Um, so Westerbork has a compl- a complicated history. Um, it is a refugee camp that was completely planned and paid for by the Jewish community in the Netherlands. Uh, they had to beg the government to do it, and there mm-hmm. were protests in Drenthe, which is the kind of area around the camp, against having it. Uh, so again, an example of, you know, it, it is a camp that is the reason it existed was because of the Dutch Jewish community. Uh, you have people coming starting in 1939, um, and when the occupation starts, there is an attempt to evacuate those, um, those Jewish refugees. And it, essentially, they they leave the camp, their, their ways out are blocked because of the different bombings of bridges that happened by the Germans, uh, which of course is a, is a tactic, uh, and they have to come back. So those, those um, you know uh, mostly German Jewish refugees are stuck there. By the time uh, 1942, it is officially a, um, a transit camp run by the Nazis. So that infrastructure is already there, and they build on it. Um, And it's run by a man uh, by the name of Hemmacher. And it is a small portion is a kind of permanent um, residence of the camp, but the rest uh, are are made up of those Dutch Jews who are being um, deported, uh, arrested and deported from cities across the Netherlands. They're taken to Westerbork uh, and then those trains are taking them east to places like Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen and Therese and stuff. Um, and that, that, I mean, that is the kind of the main main camp. Uh, there's also Camp Vucht, which is a, a much smaller camp that was mixed in that it was also for Dutch resistance members. So non-Jewish individuals were also there, um, but it is known for having um, uh, a... a, a a deportation of children, so a kinder transport east. Um, and there is a, a memorial there for that uh, deportation. Uh, but so you know there's there they're more than one you know transit camp in the country. And I won't go into the to the others, but Westerbork is kind of the last stop for Jews in the Netherlands. Um, and you know uh, you know, the 104,000 Jews who were uh, uh, deported and eventually murdered go through that
0: camp. I mean, that's because the the Netherlands is not a big country, Um, Uh you know, I mean, and and just the fact that you had 104,000 people routed through that camp is just, you know, kind of mind-boggling. But I mean, the Dutch have... You know, and in a lot of military history, you know, and I'm I'm a vet myself, so you know, I've okay, you know, I've read uh, quite a bit, you know, but World War II history, things like that, uh, you know, while I was deployed, you know, the, the Dutch resistance is kind of, a, you know, they've got a special place in a lot of people's hearts, right? It was it was an actual effective resistance, um, you know, because God forbid anybody gives any credit to the French, uh, but uh, yeah, I,
1: yeah, this <laughs> is news to me. I didn't know that people know about the dutch resistance so oh, yeah. I, I wasn't
0: aware oh yeah oh yeah uh one of my favorites uh is the 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 teenage dutch girls that were going around murking mm-hmm. nazi soldiers <laughs> uh i can appreciate that uh and i do appreciate that um but you know they, they had an effective resistance and you alluded to that they you know as they you know were unfortunately some of them were caught and sent to you know camps mm-hmm. further east mm-hmm. um but because that resistance was so fierce, that's when you started seeing like that Nazi crackdown, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because like uh, yeah. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting, like you said, because it was kind of more uh, probably laid back, which is awful when you're occup we talking about an occupied country, mm-hmm. uh, but it seemed a little more laid back than it than it was in, in some of the other uh parts of you know the Nazi territories that they overtook. Yeah. And that's hot.
1: yeah. Initially, their their plan was to you know um, bring the Dutch into this kind of larger German Aryan family, uh, and they and they did the same with Norway. Uh, they had ideas, you know. They the the Nazis felt that um, you know even in Belgium it was a complex question of who is. You know Flemish and who is French, um, so that's a little bit more mixed. But they really look down on the French. They don't see the French as their as their equals um, and um, as their racial equals. Uh, and so with the Dutch, it, it initially was the plan. Uh, but when resistance happens, um, and and you see this again. Um, the consequences for both the resistance and for the failure of Operation Market Garden is the hunger winter of 1944, in which 20,000 people died because of um, several different reasons. One of them being cutting off um, because of a a strike, a railway strike, cutting off food transports to Western provinces. Uh, And then of course with Operation Market Garden, only the 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 South is liberated initially, and so um, it is kind of very much part of this um, collective memory for those who and their families who experienced this intense hunger. Uh, and, you know, with so many dying, um, that kind of stays, you know, for generations.
0: Yeah, and you. That was a weird noise. Sorry. <laughs> um- You've already mentioned, <laughs> um, you know, the the February strike, which I think is really important. Uh, you know, like you said, they started pushing out the Dutch Jewish population out to the camps, and then you know there was yeah. there was a, a an uprising. You know, a, a general call, like a general strike, in in that in February forty one.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, and what was that kind of the sort of crackdown? Uh, is that when that 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 yeah. crackdown started?
1: Yeah, you can see more um, aggressive policies being taken after 41, especially in places like Amsterdam. Um, You know, it's a complex question. There are a lot of Dutch Jews who feel very strongly that the Dutch didn't resist whatsoever, and they maintain that. Um, And, you know, percentages really look at 5% being in the resistance, 5% being uh, complicit or a collaborator. Um, and so it, it's, there is, you know, an, there's a Dutch resistance, different organizations. Um, it's actually interesting. If you look at the newspapers that exist today, a lot of them started as underground newspapers from different parts of, you know, whether they're, they were communist or conservative or Christian, uh, those newspapers having their start um, as underground newspapers, um, you have, you know, um, I I spend a lot of time in, in earlier in my PhD talking about gender uh, in the Netherlands. So you have young women who, um, because they're you know unassuming young women who are carrying identity cards, ration cards, weapons. Um, you know they're they're placing them in, in um, baby carriages when there's no children there, right? And they're and they're transporting it. They're they're trying to bomb um, um, municipal buildings that have those registry cards. Uh, And then you have women like Hanny Schaft, who is kind of known as the the girl with the red hair, who took up arms uh, and is actually executed in in 1945 um, in Harlem for for her activities. Um, And so you you have different forms of Dutch resistance, um, but people still have these lingering questions. And it's, you know, I think in some ways it's very fair. Why wasn't there more resistance towards the deportation of Jews, and why was a lot of the resistance maybe thinking about, you know, less having to do with Jews and more having to do with being occupied by another country, Uh, you know, when those men are are being asked to, uh, are being forced to to go east, you know, labor, then you also have the question of why you have 20,000 Dutch men who volunteer for the Waffen-SS. So it's a very complex case in the Netherlands. And that's why, as you brought up in the beginning, I think it's incredibly instructive. Uh, And people, uh, you know, tend to kind of be like, oh, they're a small Western European country. And it's like, wait a minute, highest rate of deportation out of any Western European country during the war. You know, how how can we account for this?
0: Yeah, I I thought that was really interesting as I was digging into it. Uh, But we'll tackle that number and and those statistics like towards (laughs) the end. But um, a big part in what you see in a lot of occup- German-occupied territory, you know, as far east as Poland, uh, you see them set up these Jewish councils. Um, mm-hmm. What what was their role in the occupation government? Or, or kind of that yeah, so occupation Jewish overall?
1: Yeah, so Jewish Councils are again another complex topic and I'm by no means uh, an expert on on them and I so I, I won't talk in detail, but um, you know there's definitely historians who have been wrestling with this question because. Um, people so non Jewish people and and and, of course, some Jews are asking these questions, but mainly non Jewish people like to point to the Jewish Council and say look. You participated. You, you know, helped the occupier, and this is in not just Jewish councils in the Netherlands, but you helped the occupier um, deport your own people. So, you know, how can you ask us that we didn't do more when you were, you know, collaborating? And so it becomes a really sticky question, uh, and the historiography of, of you know, how do we define, how do we characterize these Jewish councils? But um, you know, the point of the Jewish Council was to get those individuals, mostly men, but you know, of course, at the time, uh, who were um, prominent members of the community, uh, and they would act as a kind of go-between between their Jewish community and uh, the the gov- the Nazi, you know, occupation government. Uh, and their job was to basically say, just go along with what they're asking. You know, pack up your 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 bag. Bags, you know, your belongings, the things that you can take with you. Uh, and, you know, they were somewhat in charge of um, making sure that people were going to those sites. One of those sites in Amsterdam being the Hollands of Schauberg, which was um, a former theater, uh, becoming a site of deportation. So, you know, um, comply with what the Nazis are asking to do. Everything's going to be okay you know, again, these, they didn't have any inkling in the beginning of what was in store for them. A lot of people imagined it was going to be forced labor in the East.
0: Yeah, I mean, Um, the the Nazi regime did a, you know, they bent over backwards to make it seem like that's, you're you're going to work for the fatherland, right? Like, we need every available soldier in the army, you know, in the Luftwaffe, and, and, you know, we need them fighting, you need to be you know conducting that that manual labor for us um you know and, and it, that's a tricky like you said that's a, the jewish councils are very tricky um, i only brought this up because i i took a, a course with dr bruce the um who's an amazing like world war ii soviet russia holocaust scholar like I, I love the man um and and that was a big part of uh you know probably three straight lectures was the jewish okay. councils you know and a lot of people don't realize that, you know, a lot, I would say most of these, these people that were, one, they were chosen, like you said, they were mm-hmm. like, they were mayors, they were rabbis, they were yeah. important folks, right? Yeah. Uh, when you're being told to do something at the point of a gun, you're going to do it. Yeah. You know, um,
1: and many of these men, um, you know, uh, uh, they commit suicide they have immense guilt over what they're doing. So it's not a kind of black and white question of whether these men are, you know, can be thought of as as straightforward collaborators in the same way we can think of others.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's the thing, though, it it goes back to, uh, you know, unfortunately, here, especially in the United States, we have this, we have a big issue with context, like how, mm-hmm. how these things are looked at. Um, and And people really want to look at things in a very black and white nature. And, that's not the case. There's a lot of gray, especially when we're talking about something, you know, like uh you know Nazi occupation during World War II. Um yeah. you don't you can't just set you know chalk it up uh as to it has to be, you know, it's one or the other. Yeah. Um but you know the Dutch, the Dutch they push they push back quite a bit. Um and and you know, maybe there are questions of um, you know, could they have done more, could this group have done more, could that group have done more? Um, you know, the Catholic church in, in the, in Holland spoke out very, uh, it, it seems at at the early part of the occupation, they were speaking Mm. pretty active in speaking out against the deportations. Um, but it seemed like they kind of got knuckled under as it carried on. Um, but you had mentioned that winter of hunger, uh, you know, after, you know, that kind of coincided with the market garden, um operation and if you can touch on market garden really quick because a lot of people like I was in the eighty second it's a big deal uh, okay. but but a lot of people don't realize it was an absolute shit show uh, <laughs> you know like that's probably the best way to sum it up yeah
1: <laughs> yeah so you know I'm not I'm gonna I'm probably gonna fudge some of the details here even though I just participated they had a the anniversary uh, and there was a big Twitter um Um, there was a Twitter account that uh, every day was posting about Market Garden and kind of going through um, that history. But essentially, uh, you know, a a lot of the, so the Netherlands is a country that's partly underwater. (laughs) So you have a lot of important bridges. Um, And in Arnhem, uh, it's, uh, they wanted to blow up a bridge that would prevent the Nazis from, you know, carrying over tank supplies. Um, and a lot of that was uh, uh, somewhat unsuccessful and the blowing up of the bridge was supposed to coincide with the, um, he, uh, those members of the of the regiment parachuting down into the Netherlands. Um, and there was just stiffer resistance than they anticipated. Uh, and a lot of American, uh, and I believe Canadian too. Uh,
0: uh, yeah, there are American, Canadian. Uh, there was British. The English, yeah, British and uh, a Polish battalion actually jumped in.
1: Yes, yes, I remember that from yes. the the <laughs> film. That's uh, yeah, that's so. Um, what happens is, you know, I can I can probably talk better about uh, less the military and more the civilian response, which is that. It's referred to as a um, as Black Tuesday because the the those Nazi um, uh, some Nazi individuals, uh, so Nazi um, authorities in the Netherlands, uh, but mostly the Dutch collabor anybody who was like a Dutch collaborator with the regime was like, okay, the American the Allies are coming. We need to leave so a lot of them tried to flee at that moment because they believed that the the occupation was going to be over and they were not about to be held responsible for what they did. Um, And so you kind of have this mass like uh, fleeing and and trying to escape um, so, so as not to be caught and and you know the the Dutch were they were so excited. They were celebrating. They they thought that they were going to be um, liberated uh, and unfortunately it was really only the south that ended up being liberated uh, and because of that the war continued um, and quite brutally in the north and the west uh, in those provinces and so that's where you have um, you know a kind of split um, and of course, with the railroad strike, um, that they are cutting off supplies to the Western provinces and people are having to, you know, people start eating turnips, you know, whatever they can find in the ground. Uh, they start coming, uh, you know, to the countryside to, to see what kind of food um, they can find. And it's, you know, as I said, it, it coincides with a, with a brutal winter um, and there's very little um, to warm their houses. Um, and, uh, so, you know, 20,000 people, roughly 20,000 people end up dying because of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that's something that's, I don't think is addressed enough is, uh, you know, kind of like that human cost by tertiary means, you know, not bullets and Mm -hmm. bombs, um, uh, you know, the starvation, uh, the, you know, like in the case of the Netherlands, you know, you had Nazis blowing the dams and flooding portions of the country. Yes, um, you know, like it, we I, I, there's not enough uh, paid. You know, I, I don't think there's enough attention paid to those kinds of.
1: Um... Yeah, the civilian uh, experience of of um of the occupation. I mean, now there's uh, so I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's uh, and they created a sort of center slash archive uh, immediately after the war. Um. Now it's referred to as the Netherlands Institute for War Documentation or NEOD. And people actually sent hundreds of diaries to the archive. So now the archive has all of those diaries that people wrote during the war. So we can actually get a better sense of civilian life. Um, You know, these personal diaries that people were keeping a record. So it's actually kind of great that we can get some insight through, through that.
0: Yeah, I mean, in the diaries, you know, uh, we have, arguably the most famous uh (laughs) uh, diarist of the period and Anne Frank who hid out there before her unfortunate uh death um you know but I mean that's that's a good thing uh you know and and like I get it you know having looking at the general's papers and all that happy horseshit, shit you know but like like the the civilian population like that that's where the actual experience is like yeah I'm, I'm speaking as a soldier I went there because yeah. I, I was told to um, <laughs> you know like do you really think I want to be running around getting shot at absolutely yeah. not you know yeah I would much rather be enjoying the, you know the Amsterdam and some other cool places in, yeah or I mean there's not a lot of cool places in Afghanistan that I got to see <laughs> you know but yeah I mean that that, that civilian experience that's that's the real encapsulation of the war. Um, you know, I mean, because honestly, like Bernard Montgomery, like that guy, you know, he he's the guy who screwed up market guard. You know, mm. he, he did not pay attention to intelligence on the ground. Yeah. You know, like he's just like, no, no, we we got these guys we we just kind of toss out of aircraft. Oh, they'll be fine <laughs> You know, and then he throws them all out of the aircraft and then they hit yeah. the ground. Uh, and they're like, well, there's nobody here. Let's push down a little further. And they're like, oh, there's yeah. still a lot of Nazis here. This is going to be, yes. you know, a cluster. Um, yeah. And and like you said, you know, then you, you see the split, you know, like the, the South gets liberated and what do American forces do? Well, we have to push into Germany. So mm-hmm. we'll we'll get to you guys when we get to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but,
1: you know, it's remarkable. I mean, I I will say this. There's, there's um, in addition to the Dutch... Uh, having very strong feelings about you know the allies you know the british the canadians uh the poles the the americans you know they see they see all of those people as heroes they're heroes to them and they still very much uh feel that way um recently NIOD had a, a um an exhibit, uh, a small little exhibit about the African American soldiers who uh, came to the Netherlands uh, during liberation. And so there's a lot of attention, you know, for these men. Um, and there's they're very grateful. And that's very much incorporated into that kind of memory politics of seeing the allies and, and, and viewing them as their liberators. So they're very much grateful for that.
0: Yeah, I had a couple of soldiers that went to the market garden commemorations because you know we jump in every year. Um, mm-hmm. and he got to meet the king and queen, which he thought was really cool. Um, oh wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a big deal for 80 seconds. Yeah. Years. Um yeah. I never got to go because <laughs> you know, I was never right place, right time, but yeah. Um I, I sent a lot of my soldiers and they had a blast there. Um Wow, yeah. But okay, so but we we talked, we were, you know we talked uh, at the beginning about, you know, the Netherlands had the highest population, uh, the highest percentage of, of the Jewish population of the yeah. country that was deported. Um, I like uh, France had a 70 to 75% survival rate for their Jewish population. and Belgium, it was around 60. Um, but like, how was it that only 27% of the Jewish population of the Netherlands survived?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's actually so, I'm doing my math right. Yeah, that's about yeah, 25 to 27. There's a lot of different reasons, and that's what makes country comparisons sort of difficult. Is because every single country has their own circumstances of the occupation. So. uh, my argument uh, it is based on, and I touch on this a lot in my research, is one: we have to remember that the country was occupied from 1940 to 1945, right? Um, there, it is, it is a complete civilian-run um, occupation government. Uh, you know, we can France. There's Vichy. There's the South. Um, even in places like Denmark, they still had control, they were collaborating, but it doesn't really become a full-on occupation until 1943. Um, so every situation is so different, but the Netherlands is really one of the few countries, if not the only country, if I'm thinking of other dates correctly, no, I, one of the few, I'll say one of the few, I'll stick with that, uh, Who is occupied from 1940 to 1945. Uh, so one, that plays a role. Uh, two, This is an argument that gets brought up is that for people who aren't familiar with Dutch society prior to the war, um, Dutch society was organized based on the pillar system. Now the pillar system organized communities based on um, political ideology and religion. So you have like a, you know, a liberal pillar, you have a Christian pillar. You, it, it, the Jewish pillar isn't like an official pillar, but it basically means that communities, and I mean completely organized, the jobs that you have, where your children's go to, go to school, like what summer camp they're going to in, 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 the, in, in the summer. Everything's really organized with your pillar. So this means that when the war starts, uh, when the occupation starts, you one question that gets raised is, did the pillar system impact the relationships between Jews and non-Jews? And it's because of the lack of, and, and there are relationships, right? There, there are friendships, there are, you know, non-Jewish business owners and they're Jewish workers and there's attempts to save them, right? To put them into hiding. But the question is, was it enough, right? Because there's so much a split between these different communities that maybe the question is, if it was a more mixed society, um, where you had regular, you know, encounters with the Jewish community, you would have, the Dutch would have felt, you know, more people would have been obligated to help people hide, or to, to, you know, to put people underground. Um, And so that's one question that gets raised, is it because of the pillar system that you have, um, you know, a, a, a kind of, very separate society. The other point that I've already brought up is the civil service. And that is a big part of it. It's the collab, the complete collaboration of the civil service um, in providing information um, without any resistance to the Nazis about the Jewish population. Um, and so those are kind of the main questions we have here about why rates were so high. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean it's. Yeah. it's- you also have to look at, you know, population density uh, and, and and just this, the sheer size. Like, where where's a large chunk of the Jewish population going to hide? In the mm-hmm. um, you know, in France, you had uh, you know urban areas, large urban areas where they could have you know easily been hidden. They had large open spaces where you can uh, you know kind of like what they did in the Baltic countries. Uh, you know, they went in the woods and built whole you know, essentially towns, you know? Where where are you gonna do that in the Netherlands? Like you said, half of it's underwater, uh, you know? uh, And on top of that, you know, there was a long occupation that they had to to survive. Um, Yeah,
1: I mean, I think they're, they're, you know, I think one of the arguments against kind of where, you know, the, the ability to have an organized, Um, you know, hide Jews, have a system of organized, organized system, is that you do see that with the Dutch men in 1943. So the question then gets raised, why didn't they do more early on for Jews? They could have hidden more Jews than they did. Um, And I think that also comes up, you know, this relationship between the Jewish community and the non-Jewish Dutch community um, there that, you know, we have to ask ourselves that question.
0: So, 1945 comes, uh, you mm-hmm. know, and, and we all know, uh, the allies win and the Nazis are bad and they get their asses kicked. Right. Yes. But it still leaves Europe devastated. Yes. Um, you know, what was like, what's the war's over and I, you know, it, it's years before things get, you know, things kind of yeah. die back down because, you know, like you said, Rotterdam disappears and they have to completely build it Yeah. All over again, right. Um, what was, you know, what was the effect on, on the Dutch people mm-hmm. post, you know, post-occupation? Uh, um, like what, how, how were, you know, how did they bounce back from it?
1: Yeah. So they do away with the pillar system after the war um, and they have a government that is, so <laughs> this is kind of like the story of resistance in every country. The resistance is like, yes, we will have a big role in the post-war government like, we did this, Uh, we've been organizing, we've been underground, we deserve, we're going to have, we're going to, you know, be in charge of the the direction that the country takes afterwards. And a lot of them are pushed out, which happens almost everywhere, Um, unless you're, you know, thinking about De Gaulle. Um, They're, they're not, Having the place in government that they thought they would, um, but you you kind of have this attempt at rebuilding, um, and you know the country's ravaged at 1945. There's not enough supplies. There's not enough food. There's not enough housing, um, and there's this kind of you know immediate uh, decision to round up collaborators, uh, and this is both. I mean, this is you know the resistance has been keeping lists they know who the collaborators are. Uh, but women who had relationships with uh, German soldiers are also included in that list. Um, and uh, this is a f- familiar phenomenon across Europe, but you know, they're marched naked, their heads are shaved, they're kind of seen as horizontal uh, collaborators, they're traitors to their nation, um, and, and they're treated quite horribly and their children, and, and they remain uh, stigmatized decades after, you know, even today, you can talk about the way that the Dutch feel about these women, which, um, you know, is partly kind of unfair, uh, if you consider the the kind of the the hatred of, of the fact that they're having romantic relationships, compared to people who, you know, were responsible for deporting Jews, you know, it's a question of like, okay, where is this coming from? And a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of gender analysis there about why women who have relationships with Um, occupying soldiers are are treated as this kind of the ultimate traitor right Um, but so there's an attempt to you know round up collaborators and this is where Westerbork comes back into play okay so uh, I have a whole chapter devoted to Westerbork because it is quite it is a very unique situation and there's lots to say about it but 1945 while roughly, I think the number is somewhere on 837, Jews are still in Vesterborg. Col- uh, accused collaborators are placed um, at the camp uh, under arrest. So you don't even have uh, Jews; haven't even been like liberated from that camp. They haven't been resettled yet, and you have uh, men and women, um, you know, sometimes pregnant women who give birth in the camp. Um, at Westerbork, which is now, uh, you know, a camp for collaborators. Uh, so very early on, and it's a mess. It's a whole thing is a mess. And this is, I mean, I, I don't know that there's a country um, who recovers and treats their populations, especially their Jewish returning survivors, well. I don't know that there's an example of that. But the Netherlands is, is, is a, if I can use this uh, youth slang, a hot mess yeah. in that, yeah. um, there's so much chaos. Um, they people are so Jewish, you know, a couple thousand Jewish survivors are some returning on foot to the Netherlands. Um, and people don't have any sympathy for them because all they're thinking about is, well, I just survived an occupation and it was horrible for me. And they don't recognize the kind of aid that these Jewish uh, people need and the kind of things that they that should be provided for them. In some cases, um, Jews are, pla- you know, when I, not at, at other locations, they're placed in the same camp as collaborators. They're still required to do hard labor. And at the same time, and this is post-1945, um, you know, there's, I have one case where survivor from Bergen-Belsen uh, forced to do, uh, you know, be in the camp with others, hard labor, and the camp commander is yelling anti-Semitic slurs right so anti uh and we we'll, we can talk about this you know uh we can go into this deeper um because much of my work touches on this, continues throughout the post war decades uh and, and it morphs and it evolves in different ways um so I don't know if you if you are ready to go into to kind of post war uh, treatment, but
0: I, I think this is a good spot to do that um because okay. you know like i you know, we, we've especially recently we've seen the lurch of europe to the right yes all right yes it, it's been and this has not like it was kind of like at a slow boil but now it's just like yeah they're jumping in with both feet um yeah and if i can i can't remember the gentleman's name but uh he, you know he's he's essentially like the dutch you know nile Farage, um, oh um
1: hair to builders
0: yes that's him builders you know there's also he, the
1: hair thing going on yeah.
0: too <laughs> <laughs> yeah bad hair seems to be a big thing with our yeah. uh, our far yeah. right uh yeah uh strong man wannabes yes you know but when, when when you think about the netherlands uh you know and uh you don't you don't think about anti-semitism much because you you know yeah. a lot of people just don't know uh, but mm-hmm. then you have guys like like wilders who's just off the rails with it mm-hmm. um and you had mentioned that you know Jews are surviving Bergen-Belsen and finding mm-hmm. their way back home, and mm-hmm. they're put in camps and they're they're being subjected to that yeah. anti-Semitism. Well, what, would what, what would you have said that the Netherlands was a uh, was there a history of anti-Semitism in the Netherlands prior to the war?
1: I mean, they don't. It. I mean, there's a so it's it's complicated. I mean, I think um, I think one of the things that you I mean, I don't know that characters builders. I think what you see with him is more Islamophobia. Right. So like the the kind of representation of um, You know, pushing back against refugees, immigrants, anybody who's non Dutch. There's this weird thing going on right now with the, the the right in the Netherlands, where they are supportive of Jews because they're Islamophobic so it's like a complicated uh situation there but yeah, it's, it's basically kind of like the enemy
0: of my enemies my yes. friend type thing even though
1: yeah
0: yeah when they to fear though they they're sitting there
1: Maybe yeah. some
0: of them are are being in, yeah I get you yeah
1: they they think you know um playing off of that kind of Stereotype of, you know, Jews and Muslims can't possibly be friends. And so we can't have Muslims coming into our country because they don't understand Holocaust commemoration. And that is a legitimate talking point for them. But 1945, the Dutch government feels So I don't think it's an anti-Semitic policy in this particular policy, but they believe that if they treat Jews separately, then they are replicating the system that the Nazis had, which is completely ludicrous, right? So if we make an exception, if we separate them, if we treat them differently, then we're just doing what the Nazis did. Um, and then you kind of see in different policies after that in individual actions that underlying antisemitism. And you know, there's a discussion to be had about pre-war Netherlands. Um, and one of my biggest, I mean, one of my main arguments in my research is the Dutch have always, and this is going back to like the 80 years war, um label themselves as a tolerant country. Tolerance is their keyword. And people know this for some reason about the Dutch uh, as being this liberal tolerant haven. And this comes into, you know, with drugs and prostitution and all of that is wrapped into people's understanding of Amsterdam and then, of course, the Netherlands. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so there's this sense that we are tolerant, we are not anti-Semitic, we have done nothing wrong. And that is the main narrative. This narrative of widespread resistance to the Nazis starts 1945. And, and Jews know that's not true. It's not the case because if you look at the percentages of people, it's really 5%, 5% with resistance collaboration. So this resistance narrative, this victim narrative, um, is so successful that it really paints the Netherlands. You know, when people are thinking about countries and how they treated their, their Jewish populations, it doesn't come up as much. So people are often really surprised when I say yes, 75% of the Jewish population was decimated during the war and during the Holocaust. Um, and so what you have is is things like, um, and this is you know, um, uh, people, Jewish people, children uh, who grow up. You know, uh, unfortunately, we we've lost a lot of the people who have survived the Holocaust. You know, as the years go on, but you know, things like uh, the phrase, and this is um, you know, a great uh, a great Jewish historian in the Netherlands who passed a couple years ago, Evelina Hans, um, you know, wrote about kind of the phrase "they have forgotten to gas you," which which in Dutch was a phrase that was you know used by kids on the playground, um, people on the street to 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 Jews. Uh, it became a kind of. A, a, you know the 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 phrase that was lobbied at that um, those Jews who had survived the Holocaust as they have forgotten to gas you. Um, and there's a lot of writing uh, that she does that kind of outlines uh, the cases of harassment of Jews by police officers who kind of have these off the cuff, um, you know, comments about um, that 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 hint at basically you know their Holocaust experience. And so this is, this is one issue, right? This is the kind of the everyday experience of Jews. Uh, there's forms of resentment. You know, there's people who took advantage of the opportunity to take Jews, as, you know, Dutch Jews, uh, their houses, their, their furniture, their, their money, their jewelry, right? So they took advantage of that. So when Jews come back and they're saying, hey, you're in my house, it's like, too bad, buddy. This isn't your house anymore. What what also happens, and this is only because of the work of, of two researchers at NEOD, um, Hinka Piersma and Jeroen Kemperman, uh, who found out through their research that after the war Jews were um, basically levied with fines, taxes, unpaid utilities for the years that they were deported and in concentration and extermination camps. And they were at forced and asked to, I'm not, not asked, forced to pay these fines for the years that they were obviously in the East.
0: That is nuts. Yes. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine surviving a place like Bergen-Belsen or, you know, Auschwitz or any of the other camps. And uh-huh. then, what you, you, you know, you're hoofing it back you know hoping that you have enough food and you know just to survive the yeah. walk back and then you get back into the netherlands and there's some you know schmuck that's sitting there yeah. like wait dude uh you haven't paid like a coal subsidy and yeah you, know, you haven't paid to have coal delivery you know to your house in five years so yeah where's my you know where's this money like so, that. in the
1: years after, you know, and sometimes it happened to you know the the people who had lived there at those addresses, you know, they were murdered. Uh, and so family members would be, you know, here's a bill for this, you know, the years after the war, being saddled with this these bills for unpaid utilities and rent. Um, and so that that has come to light in the past uh, it, fairly recently in you know the past decade. Um, there's more that happens, which is uh, one of the other kind of major controversies is the Lero affair, which um, it, in 1997, the Krona Amsterdamer, which is a, a newspaper for the city of Amsterdam, did their own investigative research and found that in the 1960s, finance ministry employees had a bunch of Jewish um, belongings. I'm talking high-priced art jewelry. Um, and all of these belongings had been kind of siphoned from the Jewish community through a Nazi front bank um, that was the Lippmann-Rosenthal bank. And it was, uh, there is a very real Jewish bank and the Nazis used this as a front bank um, that Jews thought, okay, this is a Jewish bank that will hold on to my belongings during the war, but it wasn't. And so um, they have all of this Jewish, you know, belongings. And what they did instead of finding the people and returning it to family members or the individuals who it belonged to, auctioned it off at half the cost to their own employees. <laughs> so that's a big scandal in 1997, uh, in that now there's an actual commission whose task. Um, the Museum Acquisitions uh, Commission, who's tasked with finding out which museums, which archives, places have J- stolen Jewish art uh, and belongings. And in 2018, uh, they found that 42 out of 163 institutions had stolen Jewish um, art. Um, and so This is just another example. I mean, I think one of the reasons why we're seeing, you might be wondering, why is this happening so late? Why is it taking so long for these things to come to light? Is that you have this very strong resistance narrative, this idea of tolerance, this idea that the Dutch Public, the Dutch civil service, the Dutch government, the king, you know, the queen, uh, were not responsible for what happened to the Dutch Jews. That they were victims alongside them, uh, and that's a, a really powerful narrative of Dutch identity that they understand, and that gets portrayed to the international community. Of this is this is you know this is how we see ourselves, and this was our experience, and we are not to be thought of as collaborators the way the entire you know Eastern Europe. It gets you know slapped with that label um and so part of kind of what i examine is these more recent controversies over memory and the way that gets played out in the public sphere um, and so you know it was only i was actually there in 2020 um at the international um, holocaust remembrance day ceremony Tw- okay so picture this 2020 first official apology from the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, uh, for the Dutch government's role in the deportation and the murder of, of Jews. 2020, that is the first time that you have an official government apology.
0: Now, I have to ask this question. How was he getting beat up by like the public or the press or, or anything that kind of pushed him into it? Or no. did he just feel like it's about no. time he did it?
1: No, I think it's part. I think honestly, the public, <laughs> I'm sure some in the Dutch public felt it was unnecessary. I'm sure many didn't really, I mean, they don't care I mean, enough to-, to really, you know, uh, it- it's the, it's really, um, you know, you have this situation um, post 45, where almost every uh, victim int- slash interest group, I-, I refer to them as belangengroepen, gets formed. So um, every kind of subgroup that existed during the war has an organization post-war to help those members. So, you know, this is from veterans organizations to Jewish organizations to even um, women who um, had relationships with uh, German soldiers. So every kind of organization. And in, you know, I think over time, those Jewish organizations have become quite influential in saying, wait a minute, we need to correct this. This is not right. It's time for you to do this. But even with that apology, you know, and again, I I write about this as well. There were some Jews who were like, I could care less about your apology. It means nothing to me. You, You saying this, what is that? You know, 75 years later has no impact on my family's experience and me. So who are you to tell me, you know, like this apology? It, 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 it's, it's too late, it has, it has no meaning to me. So there's a very mixed response about people who are like, yes, this is a great step. Uh, and then those people who are like, it, this means nothing, it has no real power behind it. Um, you know, we've, we, we continue to face this anti-Semitism in the Netherlands. Um, 2020, May 4th, which is the big commemoration for the war and subsequent uh, peacekeeping operations, um, the king gives uh, Willem Alexander gives the first apology by um, uh, you know uh, by uh, the, the monarch uh, to the Dutch public. So big year 2020 for apologies and you know this this question of why you know something that I'm wrestling with constantly is why has it taken so long to come to terms. Uh, to acknowledge the role that they played in in the Holocaust, their collaboration, and then, of course, the post-war history of anti-Semitism and the way that it has persisted and the way that today we see it, as you explain, explode. In what you have, um, organizations who are constantly tracking hate crimes, and it's just increasing. And so we're seeing across the board increases in Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, racism, xenophobia, and you know that question of how do we? And you know, of course, there's people, great people who are who are um, uh, dealing with the question of, you know, how do we explain this? But my my look into it is more along the lines of how do we understand. Um, this, these increase in anti-Semitism, racism, xenophobia, alongside contemporary Holocaust commemoration. So how do we understand these two things of the way that the EU and the Netherlands thinks about Holocaust commemoration and and the, the character of that commemoration alongside, you know, all of these new issues? Well, I mean, how? No, no.
0: No, no nation wants to be seen as as anti-Semitic, right? Like, no, nobody nobody wants to be equated to the Nazi regime. Well, I, mean, I guess
1: mm, there, maybe we can think of one or two nations who have yeah, no but,
0: problem. Yeah, with yeah, it. but you're absolutely correct. Yeah, you know, <laughs> right. okay, but we'll, we'll say we'll say a country like the Netherlands, like you said. Yeah, look at the world sees them as this tolerant, uh, yes. really quaint little country with dams, yeah. and flowers, and and cobblestone streets, right? Like, yeah. no way uh can can they have anti-Semitism running ramp or you know be, yeah. being a facet of the culture, right? Yeah. Now you know you you look at the big picture and like, you know, I you know, I, I you know I've alluded to like the the eighty second stuff, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, go to Normandy. American paratroopers are still yeah like you said, they're looked at like they're heroes. And and when they have the market garden, yes. you know, the, the royal family comes yeah. out and watches just a bunch of American idiots fall from an aircraft into a big open field, <laughs> right? But the royal, yeah. Fam- like, yeah, like, like royals, like uh, Dutch royals, that, like, I'm pretty sure the king and queen are like, listen, they are not allowed to come to family reunions. They're there for the market garden, <laughs> right? It's it's a big deal, right? So, like, World War Two is yeah. still, you know, you still kind of had like the that kind of veneration for the the people that fought, right? Um, yes, yes. But then you know, like we were talking about a lot of that you know maybe it's more nationalist look, but like for the dutch look, look at how we suffered, and then the the French look at look you know but look at how we suffered, you know mm-hmm. and the poles, look at how we suffered, um but I mean, yes. do you see like a a kind of a big picture uh, uh look at how you know the holocaust of World war two. Uh, affected just Europe as a whole? Like, is there a bigger picture or is it always going to be segmented like that?
1: Yeah, no, I think that, that, and, you know, Eastern Europe um, gets painted with a completely different brush uh, and then it's complicated by, of course, their communist experience uh, and and the victimhood they feel under communism, which is very real. Um, But at least in Western Europe, there's this sense of um, uh, the... So there's this kind of concept of this year zero in Germany that you know, the past is the past. Um, and many feel that it's time to move forward. And so when you look at the history of the EU, a lot of it, I mean, it is completely rooted in this never again narrative of how do we prevent and maybe not ner- never again in terms of genocide, but never again in terms of total war, how do we prevent another war from um, breaking out? And the, the, we need to have these kinds of agreements, These, and it begins as an economic agreement, um, the, the EU, uh, and, and how do we kind of grow that so that we can kind of get away from these individual nationalisms that they feel is part of the problem. Um, obviously we see today, it remains a huge problem because people aren't thinking of themselves as, I mean, they have this really complicated relationship with thinking of themselves as European. They think of themselves as European when it comes to othering of immigrants and refugees, but they still very much hold on to their individual nation state identities. Uh, And so, you know, we're we're seeing that with Brexit. We're seeing that with countries who want to replicate Brexit. Uh, They they want to be away from the EU. But in terms of, you know, post-war, it's rebuilding. It's how can we move on from this? Um and how can we, you know, I think that there's there's so many countries, um, including places like Poland, who have a mixed victim resistance narrative um, that is so strong that it does away, it puts you know puts it under the carpet, all of these horrible things that happen and the treatment of jews and 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 their um, Roma and sinti populations, right?. Um, it does away with all of that. And it's kind of this process of renewal uh, where they don't have to look to the past. But painting themselves as victims and resistance um, uh, during the war, it, it contributes to this overall European narrative that it's the Germans and we are the victims. And it is all them and we have no place uh, in, in taking uh, responsibility for that. And then you see that in the kind of um, uh, in, in the Holocaust uh, conventions that you see of, of, okay, we're gonna have this EU policy about Holocaust commemoration. We're gonna have an EU policy about the kind of uh, treatment of your citizenry, you know, human rights, all of this language, all of this rhetoric. And then the question is, you know, what does that actually mean? Because if you're still not forcing countries to take responsibility, if the countries themselves aren't being forced to take responsibility, then what does it mean that you are participating uh, in these kind of European wide programs about commemoration? Uh, it, it seems a little bit you know, hypocritical.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like lip service. You know, like we recognize yeah, exactly. that this happened, but I don't want to acknowledge my part in it.
1: Yes. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason why it has taken so long is because of individual, um, you know, nation state identities and then that European identity and what they want to portray to the international community. And of course, it does them good to say, we were victims. We also resisted. This is our legacy. This is our history. Um, And then, of course, you know, you also see that uh, happening with uh, their imperial past. So, Decolonization is kind of like the next uh, big thing that the Dutch are wrestling with and still haven't come to terms with. You know, Vesterborg continues its history beyond um, as a collaborationist uh, camp and it becomes in 1949, sorry, no, 19, yeah, 1949, uh, 48 49 becomes a staging ground for the Dutch military. Then it becomes once again a so it becomes a um, and that's the Dutch military who are going into the Dutch East Indies or you know present day mm-hmm. Indonesia and then it becomes a um, a refugee camp for Moluccans who were fought alongside the Dutch military um, against the Indonesians because the uh, Indonesians uh, kind of treated them as a minority population to be persecuted they come to the Netherlands and then there's this question of Uh, they're living in these kind of, I mean, it's almost inconceivable to think about the history of Westerbork and the fact that they, so they do grow the barracks and they turn them into kind of small family homes, but they're living in the same place that you had Jewish refugees, then Jewish prisoners, uh, then it's an internment camp for collaborators, and then the Dutch military, and this continuous history. And then, of course, um, the, the controversies that come up with Moluccans who are living in, in the Netherlands and this kind of sense that they're not Dutch, they're not us, what are they doing here? Um, and that just complicates it even further. So, I mean, it's, it's almost this kind of very um, layered history that is full of controversy and emotion. And even the way that the Jew, that Dutch Jews, some of them, feel about the uh, commemorations that happen at Westerbork with these different groups, where they feel it is their place um, but there's also so many other people who went through Westerbork who feel an attachment that are not Jewish. So it becomes very complicated, and that uh, politics of memory is continually playing out today with the, with the kind of drama that we see unfolding.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. I mean, that's something that's really important to point out. It, it doesn't matter what your interest in history is. it There's always going to be a lot of layers. Um, yeah. Like for me, I mean, honestly, if, if I'm the Dutch <laughs> Prime Minister, I'm Putting a big rope around Uh kind of like what they did with Auschwitz, turn it into like a place, uh, yeah, to, to where you could you could learn, uh, you, you could, you know, visit, you could see it, you could you could have it there, you know, but <laughs> don't keep using it, man. Like that's just. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And they have, so it's a museum. Uh, The museum is a couple uh, is about a mile from the original campgrounds because in the, um, I forgot if it was the, I think it was in the eighties or late seventies, they put these kind of radio transmission discs up. So you can't have um, like a cell phone in in the region. It doesn't like really work there. So they had to put the museum separate. Um, It wasn't until... Uh, the late 70s, early 80s, that there was a push to turn Vesterborg into a commemorative site with a museum and to designate it as a site. And I mean, that's decades after, right? And so, even though there were other inhabitants there um, it, for, for about 10 years, it's just there, and farmers use it to house their pigs. Um, they tear down some of the buildings for firewood. So uh, most of the camp is not standing anymore. What you have are kind of a shell of the former camp uh, with a lot of signs and pictures of recreating what it was going to look like. So it's actually, um, in that sense, it's very hard to, to imagine what the camp looked like, let's say 1942, um, because so much of it is gone. They have like one railway car, Um, They have one barrack, barrack 56, um, and some outlines of buildings and and like a watchtower. Uh, So very, very little is left, but it had, it was a major push again by the Jewish community. Um, Manya Pak, who um, was um, her, her, um, I believe her family, I can't remember if it was her or her family, survivor of the Holocaust. who watched on May 4th, which is the commemoration day, uh, construction crews tearing down buildings on site while it hit that eight o'clock. Eight o'clock is when they have two minutes of silence. So it's two minutes of silence and she's watching construction crews at Vesterbork, and she's like, this is wrong this shouldn't be happening. We need to, to save this place. So it took a couple of years um, of advocating and it was finally turned into a site. And then a couple of years later, a museum, and now it's growing uh, and it's kind of, they're, they're um, you know always incorporating these new histories and putting on different exhibits and they do a really great job there. But there's just been so much backlash from different um, communities and different, you know, parts of those communities, because the Jewish community is not a singular, right, it's not a whole, there's different, um, you know, um, priorities within the Jewish community. You know, there's a one, one of the last controversies I'll mention um, is that there is a um, night of the refugee. Which is in cities, basically they lead you on a walk, and it's to raise money for refugees from uh, different countries. Uh, and one of the locations, um, one of the starting locations um, was, or I forget if it was a starting or ending location, but was Camp Vesterborg. Uh-huh. And members of the Jewish community said, "This is you're rewriting history. You're you're changing. You know, this Westerbork shouldn't be uh, used." in this kind of political uh, way of, of um, you know, taking it out of context. Uh, and the director who retired uh, last year was under a lot of fire and he wrote this letter basically saying the history of Westerbork was one of a refugee camp. Uh, and we're not trying to change you know, and, and kind of uh, subvert this you know, Holocaust history, but it is also, there is a connection there that this was originally a refugee camp. And now what we're doing is we're just honoring that uh, and we're taking part in it. Um, But there was a lot of people who didn't feel that it was right. Uh, So it continues all of these kind of controversies about how you remember the past, which sites are used. I mean, there's a a Holocaust monument. the, The first nationwide Jewish Holocaust monument is going up is being built currently. I don't know the status because of COVID right now, uh, but it has broken ground in Amsterdam. And that was an insane fight. I mean, it was, uh, you know, uh, what is it called? Um, uh, What are those shows called where you go on? And soap opera, soap opera level fight uh, um, of uh, residents Members, different members of the Jewish community, who were all on different sides about whether it should be built there. The, you know, the. I think it, what's really funny is that this word is used um, globally, but NIMBYs not in my backyard. Um, I mean, it was, it court cases, it took court cases to break ground on this Holocaust monument. Uh, and there's Jews, you know, who I've interviewed who who don't believe that the way that the organization who's behind, who's the main one behind the monument, they they don't agree with the monument design, they don't agree with the location, they don't agree with the way it's been built. So it's not necessarily black and white of Jews against you know non-Jews, um, but it has been an incredibly emotional journey to get that Holocaust monument there, um, and it's still you know this really contested space. Um, and, you know, again, this is 2020, this this began, this attempt to get a Holocaust, you know, monument started over a decade ago. And, you know, it's 2021. And we're still kind of dealing with a lot of the emotions that are attached to Holocaust memory in the country.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's something that you don't really have to deal with in the States, uh, the way you you have to tackle, and honestly, in the rest of the world, like we are big trauma in the US, like domestically. Uh, have been domestic terrorists in the u s of war like mm-hmm. and those are things that we're still tackling uh you know, don't get me wrong, but yeah, you know we don't have to to struggle with uh you know the competing uh you know kind of phantoms of anti and and you know uh uh resistance from you know against an occupier we don't have to deal with those yeah. Things.
1: I mean, I think that we're now seeing um, we're now seeing the degree to which the U.S. is anti-Semitic. And I think we're seeing like that come out. But I think if you had to draw a parallel, it's what the Dutch are dealing with. The Holocaust is very much what we're seeing with the tearing down of um, Confederate monuments. Like that's the kind of, you know, that's what we've been dealing with, you know, the. The after effects, the consequences of the fact that you know our nation was built on slavery, you know the 1619 and 1776 reports. So it's a it's an interesting kind of parallel to think about what are the big issues that we're debating here. But I think also you know American memory of the Holocaust is so skewed because you know as you kind of mentioned, it's so much we are the heroes, we're the victors, and that's it. That's we liberated, we won the war. You know how can we possibly you know be affiliated with Nazis and now it's just it's such a complex history but that's what that was the kind of dominant narrative the U.S. was like we are we are the liberators we're the victors and we kind of um, you know paper over the fact that we closed our doors to refugees um, who could have we we could have saved during the holocaust so um, yeah it's it's a very different but there's also a lot of parallels there.
0: Yeah historical memory is a funny thing I think we could both agree on that um, Dr. Contreras, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where, you where, for having me. where can people find you? Uh, is there anything you want to plug?
1: Yeah. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, you can find me Jasmine Contreras on Twitter. Um, follow me. I talk about teaching and my cats a lot. Um, and, and yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was super fun.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad I could get you on because I, I, the whole point of the podcast was to get uh, you know, observations into pieces of history that a lot of people don't get. Um, yeah. And and like we just said, you know, like you just said, you know, U.S. history of World War II is we, we jumped in and we won, uh, yes. and that's all there is to it. Uh, but yeah. But there's there's a lot more going on. Yeah. In the overall conflict. Uh. But uh, everybody, again, Dr. Contreras, thank you so much for coming on. Um. You guys know where to find me on Twitter. I'm at BeardedCynic473. Uh, that's my personal Twitter. And then the show has a Twitter as well at YDK History, or yeah, YDK History Pod. Um, and uh, if you, anybody listening wants to be a pal and become a patron of the podcast, that would be super cool. Uh, but I'm not going to force you. <laughs> but it would be great uh, so I can get back on JSTOR. That's what I really want. I want to pay for my JSTOR. Uh, but again, Dr. Contreras, thank you so much. And everybody, we'll see you next week.
1: Thank you.